Welcome to episode 18 of On the Rocks with Joe Warren. It's hard to believe, but it's been two years since the start of the pandemic, and that event halted economies around the world. Markets fell 35% in a month as the fear of COVID-19 could not be contained. In response, the Federal Reserve began the most aggressive expansion in monetary policy in history. To be precise, the assets of the Fed balance sheet grew from $4.1 trillion to $9 trillion in just two years. Policy like this is intended to lift prices, and it certainly worked. Not only have the markets recovered, but inflation is now running at the highest level in 40 years. Now, the Fed stands at an inflection point once again, as fighting inflation is a whole different animal. Which is why I'm pleased to bring you my interview with Ellen Mead. Ellen served as senior advisor to the Fed from 2011 to 2021 and worked directly with Vice Chair Rich Clarita on monetary policy and communication strategy. Want to understand how policy out of DC affects your lifestyle? Then listen close as Ellen's insight is valuable. Enjoy. Thank you for coming, Ellen. Um, I want to start off with uh, saying thank you for being here because, as I mentioned when we started, I'm, I've been a, a Fed watcher for years. I think it's an amazing institution. I, I think you guys have a lot to deal with all the time, which I admire. So, um, but so I have a lot of listeners from all over the country, and not necessarily everybody knows the Fed or your background. So, if you could give us just a few minutes on your history with the Fed and where you, what you're currently doing. Okay, thank you. So, I came to the Fed first in 1984 long time ago, um, out of graduate school at Princeton. Um, The economic staff at the Fed are all PhDs. Uh, Right now they are numbering in the 400s. And at that time I joined the Division of International Finance. In the 1980s, we all remember Volcker's change, but in the international scope, you know, uh, world at that time, there was the Mexico default in right. 82, and there were uh, all sorts of debt restructurings over the course of the 1980s and so on and so forth. So I was in that division for 15 years with a uh, lot of changes in terms of what I did um, over the period. I, I went to the Council of Economic Advisors for a year in the 90s, and mostly in the 90s I worked on Europe and the upcoming monetary union. Then I left in 99 and we moved to London. Um, And I became an academic at that point, a researcher. And I stayed in the research world until 2011. Okay. And uh, came back from London, joined the faculty at American University. But my research was always focused on central banks and institutional governance and monetary policy committees and voting and good stuff like that. And the Fed came back to me in 2010 and said, would you come back? (laughs) And would you come back and work on the FOMC? So that was a very exciting... Don't get a lot of phone calls like that. No, you don't. (laughs) That's right. And they they also put me, wanted to bring me back as a member of the official staff. So that's a you know, a sort of um, high-level position. And so I did that. I came back in the summer of 2011 after my academic year had finished, and I stayed for 10 years and left the board 
Um, it's officially called retirement, but I didn't think I was retiring. <laughs> Not at your stage. Le- I mean, yeah. you have a lot of time left. So. <laughs> left the board at the end of August of last year. Um, I did you know, most of my work on the 10 years, which I think is what we're mostly going to be focusing yeah. on is the kind of activities I was doing during that time. Communications, monetary policy strategy. Um, I became an advisor to the board in late 2018. Um, and that's a sort of very special type of position. Oh, absolutely. And I went to work with the vice chair, Rich Clarida, who mm-hmm. had just come in September 2018, to, because he was the designated point person to lead the framework review, the review on monetary policy strategy, tools, and communication practices. And so I was his person, and I did the FedListens events, organized that entire um uh, initiative yeah. and led that initiative. Um, I worked with Jay Powell and Rich on the revisions to the consensus statement, the statement on longer run goals. Yep. Um, there was a lot of staff work that was um, I participated in, but was led by my division director, Thomas Laubach, who unfortunately passed away just after the oh. new framework was announced. Hear that. So that was something that we were all going through together in 2020, along with the pandemic. Um, So a lot of that was just really a high point for me. Um, And I think for the Fed, you know, it was the first ever review of Mm -hmm. the framework for monetary policy. Um, And at that point, I said, you know, when this is over, you know, I need to go do something else. What else am I going to do? Yeah, exactly. I've done it all. Exactly. So So that's what led up to my departure last year. and, and, uh, And since then, I've just been doing, you know, uh, getting a few clients, advising hedge funds and banks, yeah. and and I knew I was looking for some kind of academic role also, um, and I thought maybe I would combine those things. Then the Duke thing came up, and that's a full time, uh, you know, appointment. Sure. Um, and it just really appealed to me, and the Raleigh Durham area was something my husband and I've been discussing as a potential area to move to. We yeah. we were looking for places that were smaller and and a little more le- less congested and yeah. things like that. So it's just great. So I'm looking forward to that. And well, good for you. That's an impressive background. I didn't realize you went that far back to the Fed either. I didn't see that in the notes. But but uh, I, I leave that out. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, we're going to get into some subjects that aren't in the notes, I hope. But no, it's funny. You, I think you'll like the Raleigh area. It's about five to maybe 10 degrees warmer. And yeah. as I landed in D.C. this morning with the frozen Potomac, I was like, there's a reason why I'm living in Charleston. So, you know, the South has got some advantages, but D.C. is amazing, and I've always enjoyed it here. Um I just have some general questions, I think, about the Fed, and I'm coming from a background of Kentucky and South Carolina and states that aren't, you know, places that aren't as affiliated with D.C. I spent 15 to 20 years in the city, and I got very accustomed to the contacts, the lifestyle, the the news flow that comes out of the city. But does the Fed have a, a, a good understanding, or does it recognize that the general public has no idea what they do? And I don't mean that in the wrong way. I just mm-hmm. mean like it's, I think most people, when I show them a $20 bill and say, this is a Federal Reserve note, which it says, they're like, I thought the Treasury issued that. And so there's a big disconnect. So. Well, the Treasury does print them, right? But it's back, it's and, a Federal Reserve note. So. Right, right, right. And each district, you know, it's stamped with the district, which put it into circulation. Right. That is an example of something that's more like a partnership between the Treasury and the Federal Reserve, like the money supply, you know, how how people choose to hold money, whether right. they choose notes or checking accounts, is completely up to them. 
Um, and so the notes are supplied sort of passively uh, as demanded, right? Um, so I think you're right. Um, I think there was a time, if you wind back to Alan Greenspan, you know, um, in the 1990s and before, where central banks worked in the background and yes. they were very quiet. Central banks all over the world worked in the background. That started to change in 89 when New Zealand became an inflation targeting central bank, adopted a framework called inflation targeting that then became a big subject of academic discussion and other central banks followed suit, Australia, mm -hmm. the Bank of England eventually in the late 90s, the Bank of Canada quite early on, um, you know, Sweden, Norway, you know, you name it. Um, and the Fed didn't quite do that because the legislation wasn't consistent with that, and I can get to that in a minute. Sure. But the 90s were a time when central bank communications opened up and central banks started talking, particularly about what their decisions were. We made this decision today. You know, these are the reasons for this decision. Was that because they wanted clarity because policy became so pertinent to the markets? I mean, what was the change there? Because you yeah, kind of saw a little of that, right? So, yeah. So so there was, uh, you know, I don't know what the chicken and what the egg is, but certainly <laughs> the academic literature over the decade of the 90s showed that, you know, monetary policy is more effective if people actually understand what you're trying to yeah, achieve, right? So this was an attempt to communicate about where you're going and what you did. I mean, it, it's, you know, the what you did today versus what you're going to do in the future, that's called forward guidance. Sure. Forward guidance is a little later in this discussion. And in the 90s, it was more about, you know, our committee met today and we made this decision today. I mean, keep in mind, the Fed didn't actually announce what it had done with the federal funds rate target consistently until the end of the 90s, right? I was around for irrational exuberance. That was the start of my oh, career. Okay. So okay. I, I heard that. And I remember I was working at Morgan Stanley here in Washington, and uh, I remember there were some cuts, and this is during the tech bubble, and, and Greenspan made a couple comments, and then he knocked out a few hundred points on the Dow. This was back a while back right. with irrational right. exuberance. Right. So, Which it, he later viewed as a mistake. I, and I saw that, and yeah. I, that's what it, why it's so interesting to have this conversation. Like, the actual rhetoric and the nuances of the language that you use is, I can't imagine how many eyes go over each document that comes out of the... Out of oh, the, God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. As I mentioned, I had this letter from the Fed that I wrote years ago, and it's two pages, and I, I'm not sure they said anything that I could actually put my finger on, but it was so eloquent and perfectly written to say, we're going to be as adaptive as possible and do whatever we have to do to do what we need to do. And I yeah. was like, you guys do it so well. So anyways, but yeah, I think that was the first time I felt like the Fed language sort of started hitting the markets, you know, back at that day. I mean, I mean, maybe it happened probably, but I didn't notice. So Yeah, so the 90s, the Fed was being pulled by these other central banks, yeah. right, as they opened up and started talking more. And the academic profession, coupled with the you know, the leaders in the policymaking area move to the view that central banks need to communicate. They need to communicate about their votes, about, you know, maybe publish minutes of their meeting, which the Fed had been doing for ages, like since right. the 30s. Um, but but you really need to explain your decisions. I think Greenspan was not a, he didn't necessarily want to do that. I don't know that he was of the school that believed you should do that, right. but he got pulled into that, right? And then, Shortly after George Bush becomes president in 2000, uh, he appoints Ben Bernanke as a governor to the Fed. 
Ben Bernanke was, you know, a long time and very brilliant guy on monetary policy, believes very much in communicating, believes very much in forward guidance. And he's really behind the Fed's, you know, that uh, 2004 to 2006, yeah. uh, you know, uh, the measured pace language, the communicating around that in a forward guidance sense. He brings uh, Greenspan along in the forward guidance world. so. Um, he, so I, the Fed was really changing in that. It in seemed that like it. Now, I never really, really analyzed the, the, the personalities like that, but I can remember those days too. And then this wasn't when you were at the Fed, but it, I was around in 2008 um, here in D.C., and that was to me a very scary time, in my opinion, of, about the financial conditions. I feel like the playbook changed at that time. It did. I mean, the Fed had to yeah. buy assets and get right. in markets that probably just didn't want to get into. Uh, or let's not say they didn't want to, but they hadn't done in the past. Let's put it that way. Right. So... Um, the view changed by December 2008, the Fed had cut the interest rate down to what we call the effective lower bound, yeah. right? Put a target range around the federal funds rate rather than a point for the federal funds rate, right? Because zero to 25 basis points is still nearly zero, yeah. right? And you don't want to run below zero. So you put it there and you try to keep the funds rate at around 12, 13 basis points. Um, then they're out of ammunition, at least in the old playbook, right? Right. Now, they've done all these liquidity facilities, and that's what you're referring to of all the buying of stuff that they had never bought before, right. never done before. But those facilities, if you look at the Fed's balance sheet, you know, they ramped up really fast, right, during the crisis. But then they also come back down very quickly. Um, the facilities get closed down. They're, they're about stabilizing market conditions, right? They're not about providing support to households and businesses for spending and GDP growth. Sure. So all the Fed can do uh, in terms of open market operations is buy treasuries or agency debt or agency MBS, according to the statute, right? And so that's when the Fed initiated QE on November 25th, 2008, which we could talk about because it's interesting. It was uh, Bernanke did it. Uh, in contravention of the Federal Reserve Act. We could talk about that. I, I, I know at least a little yeah. bit about this because I had a good friend who was working as Paulson's liaison on the Capitol Hill at the time oh, of the yeah. Treasury. So, and I'll tell you a funny story about Lehman Brothers later, but there's nothing funny about this story, but I'll tell you an interesting story. Um, but uh, yeah, I just felt like it was almost like there was nothing, There's that, they had to do something. I mean, it just they felt did. like this is something. I mean, did. the things were not good. And, and, and Bernanke moved, you know, if you read that press release, um, uh, I don't know, I can't remember whether Bernanke, it was just Bernanke saying it, or the board probably, I think at that time anyway, they didn't understand it had to be an FOMC decision, so they didn't consult the FOMC, right? Because the Federal Reserve Act puts in charge of monetary policy the board and the FOMC. They're legally distinct bodies. Okay. So, so he they, authorized they have, those first QE was MBS, right? Agency debt and MBS. Which was under the charter. That was allowable, but nothing else was? It, it was allowed, but nothing else. They never have bought anything beyond agency debt, MBS, and treasury securities okay. that they hold in the portfolio today. They just hold slews of them, right? Yes. Um, uh, but it, the, but it, leaving issue, aside what's in the facilities that then right. rolls off uh, as those things get repaid. The, the facilities and the uh, the quote backing of other assets was, and I don't know the, all the terms and language back then, but I believe there was backing of money market and some, and I don't know if it yeah, was conjunction yeah, yeah, with yeah. treasuries, right. you know, the you know, reserve broke the buck, uh, all those things happened. And I understand, and 
I tell people, even my father and I talk about it a lot because he's always questioning inflation and printing. Uh, and I said, believe me, if this didn't happen, you would be very unhappy. Like if we did, if right. these facilities weren't in place, and right. you don't understand, a lot of people don't understand the reserve requirement and what's well, actually in your checking account or at the bank. It's not it's not the hundred bucks you put in. It's ten. And right. so right. that's the relationship that I try to play between what I see in policy and my general public who has other careers and say, hey, these are how the systems work. But but I just thought at two thousand eight, thank goodness. Y'all were independent and came because it got right. scary. There so for a while. one thing to compare and contrast with the pandemic in 2008 is the Fed was the only game in town That's in 2008, it. really. And fiscal policy was very slow to respond and inadequate to what happened then. This time around, right, not only the Fed was out the gate even faster yep. because, you know, the first the Fed, we always dated the first event um, of the financial crisis was the August 2007 closing of the uh, redemption gates on BNP Paribas. Okay. I was thinking Bear Stearns, but yeah, it's probably for And that, yeah. Bear Stearns the following March, yeah, yeah. right? So um, uh, you get all these things happening, and the Fed is not quite sure where things are going. They think after Bear Stearns, everything's going to be fine. You know, it's it's not clear what's happening right. to the Fed, right? And then as they invent the facilities, you know, they got to get all the legal documents in place, all of this stuff, and they're working fast, but they don't have a playbook for it. Whereas this time with the pandemic, you know, those facilities that they reincarnated uh, from the the 2008 period, they just put them up very quickly. Things like Main Street, which were new, took much longer to get going, right? Well, I noticed that I remember those days all too well in February of 2020 when this started coming, the new stuff started coming, started coming to the markets. And we tracked the Dow and everything else. We have, the nice thing about our business, we have direct client access. We have individual clients we work with. So when we start to get phone calls in correlation to markets, we know how much the fear gauge is. We get 10 phone calls. That's a lot for us. You know? uh -huh. So uh -huh. it's always interesting. We feel, we feel like we're in a unique position. But I did the math this morning. It's 8.7. Let's call it 9 trillion. It'll be Eight. 9 by the time. It, it, by, well, by the time we get this yeah, lunch. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so, right. um, 4.2 at the beginning. The printing was intense. And, yes. And, I, and yeah. by, by the way, I think appropriate. Um, at least at the beginning. Right. But and I, and, I, and I don't envy the position of the Fed given everything you guys had to handle. But it would seem now, with all the numbers that come out today, that we have a very high inflation rate, which is really one of the principal obligations or goals of the Fed. Why well, the printing? I know that the Fed. I listened to um, Chairman's speeches last week, um, and I know the Fed funds is the primary instrument. They made that very clear. Mm -hmm. But the balance sheet's still going up, and I have a lot of you know, theories on that. But uh, does it seem like policy is a little behind? Let me put it oh, that it's way. very behind. Okay. Yeah. So let, let's start with the pandemic. <laughs> so I think the thinking at the time of the pandemic, and this wasn't just inside the Fed, this was we give people money, tell them to stay home, don't right. go to work, right? give them lots of money, get mortgage forbearance, get, you know, rent. Uh, uh, yeah, rent. It, yeah. They right. have to pay. So. Yeah. Um, you give people extended unemployment. That's not the Fed, but that, you know, you give them stimulus checks to support, you know, them buying food. You tell them they can't go to work, right? 
and uh, the Fed comes in and puts a floor under everything. Markets were going crazy in March 2020. So the Fed rolled out the facilities. Once again, the facilities are always about calming things down and getting things back to functioning. And then the facilities get pulled, you know, pulled away. All those CARES Act facilities were wound up at the end of 2020. So, um, and, and they thought just as things fell off a cliff, they would bounce right back and go back to where they were because we would get through the pandemic by keeping everybody home so they weren't you know, transmitting yeah. and, and overwhelming hospitals, mm-hmm. which were already in some areas being overwhelmed. And uh, we'd go back to where we came from. Now, obviously, that just wasn't the case, right? right? And um, there was some talk from fairly early on uh, that there would be expected to be some supply chain bottlenecks and mm-hmm. uh, you know lags in getting you know we all had the problems getting toilet paper at the beginning and there would be further lags you know uh, problems uh, getting goods and things like that. But then I think what happened is that you know um, in 2021. You know, if you look at the Fed's forecasts at the beginning of 2021, and I'm not telling any stories because the staff says what its forecast is in the minutes. Yeah, of course. So at the beginning of 2021, the staff thought inflation would be, and they're on their measure, which is not the CPI, it's the uh, personal consumption expenditures uh, fixed weight price index, which usually runs about three tenths under the CPI, but right now it's running about a percentage point mm-hmm. under the CPI. Um, uh, they were expecting that to be under two by the time they got to the end of 2021. Okay. They uh, didn't see Delta coming, which is true for a lot of people. People. I don't yeah. Yeah. Um, they didn't see the supply chain. They, they thought they could uh, get the supply problems over with before demand picked up. I really think the hmm. focus was first on supply receding and then demand picking up because people are going back to work. I think they misunderstood, and I'm not quite sure how this is the case exactly, but I think they misunderstood the role that the additional monies in people's pocket would play in terms of pumping up demand. And of course, nobody was flying in airplanes or staying in hotels, so all the demand that used to be on services switched to goods. What do people do? They go buy cars. Right. What happens? You run out of cars. Inventory goes to zero. And then lo and behold, you can't build them fast enough because you can't get the chips. Right. And once you get the chips, all of Asia, you know, China has its no covid policy. So China's locked down every time they get something Mm -hmm. and the whole supply chain slows. And then you get the transportation problems. I mean, it's just enormous. Right. And meanwhile, demand is very focused on only, you know, on furniture, televisions, chip heavy goods. Right. And so it's not just a supply issue. It's a supply coupled with demand that's been fueled by all the stimulus and stuff. And meanwhile, when people get vaccinated and start coming back to work, there's been a change in, I don't, I, I would use an economist term, but it sounds unkind. I was going to say preferences <laughs> for wanting to work, right? There's been a lot made of retirees not coming back sure. in or retiring faster. Maybe their assets went up a bit, you know, during the pandemic, they got stimulus checks or they're owning a home who's, you know, and I think for people at the other end with children and children are home a lot. And, you know, we know that women have been slower to return to the labor force. So 
I think they didn't see that. For a long time, they were sticking to the labor force participation rate, which is about a percent and a half below where it was in February 2020, getting back up to that level before they would say the labor market was right. functioning properly. And you know, only recently did they let go of that, uh, that view. So they've been slow. They started to shift over the summer to thinking about tapering. Um, well, but, on, that, on that note, yeah. though, if, you, if the, the concept was we did these actions, but and clearly there were some repercussions that weren't expected, reversing those actions aren't going to necessarily stop the repercussions at this stage. I mean, if you're raising Fed funds is not going to change some of the things you just mentioned. I could see the balance sheet decreasing as being a really direct effect to right. bringing in a lot of those concerns you just mentioned. But going from zero to 25 or 50 is not going to do yeah. anything. I mean, I, so I, they should have stopped the asset purchases probably in September. Okay. Or at least started to taper them in September so that they could have raised interest rates by December or January. The problem was in September, they were expecting that with schools reopening, um, that the kids were going to go back to school. Women were going to come back into the labor market. And, and and all the UI was ending in September, right? Some states had sure. had ended it over the summer, but then the rest of it was ending in September. They really thought people were going to go back to work, mm. and they were waiting to see that. Gotcha. And then it also gets tied in with the reappointment. When was Biden going to announce the reappointments? You know, the Fed typically goes pretty silent when they're waiting for reappointment announcements. I mean, it was I all a politics. I perfect really storm. Do. Inflation didn't really start to show so much evidence of spreading beyond the used cars and the new cars and the foam in the furniture uh, till the September data, right, right? right? So it's like this perfect storm. Well, I wanted to say this to later, but I think we're, we're close to the subject anyways right now, which is I have my own theory um, about why the balance sheet is still increasing. Um, and I note that, and you mentioned this earlier, I think that the current holding as of this morning was that the Fed holds $5.7 in notes and bonds and notes of the Treasury, which I believe the interest is returned to the Treasury on those assets, um, at least from what the research I've seen. Uh, so the Fed remits to the Treasury every year everything after it pays interest on reserves to banks, okay, right, after deducting the operating costs of the system, right, salaries and all that. It's been around, it's been a huge number. It's a big uh, number. hundred billion dollars a year, roughly. It's gone below, but last year, I think remittances were around a hundred. Okay, well, so I didn't, so that is kind of its operating budget, let's put it that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah. I, my, my research indicated that treasury interest that it received was all returned back to the treasury, so that is not accurate. No, no, the okay. Fed has, so, all the interest that's received is within the Fed's income statements right. and stuff. And then it makes this one-time payment a couple of months into a new year based on the previous year. Uh, and that's right. after netting out, you know, yeah. interest on reserves and uh, the operating costs of the system. Well, where I was headed with that is obviously the budget and Treasury has its own special set of issues to handle uh, um, and you know the debt ceiling comes up every three months or however often it is. I, I just wondered how beholden or how intertwined the Fed is in relationship to the interest rates on treasuries given it was such a large holder. I mean if those rates were 
three, four, five percent versus let's say they're netting at one right now, that's a problem for the Treasury. And does the Fed have? I'm sure they understand that, but is there some sort of um, concern you, that says if we raise rates to four percent and Treasury's paying four and a half or five on their on their notes versus one, that's a two and a half you know billion dollar, two and a half trillion dollar year expense? Right. I mean, where does that? Is there a relationship there, or am I just coming up that, that out of thin air, and maybe it's not a concern of the Fed's? So, if you wind back before the Treasury Fed Accord in '51, there was, you know, um, uh, the Treasury wanted to keep rates low at the Fed uh, for issuance reasons. Yes. Way back then. But then the Fed was given this independence in 51 from Treasury. That's really where, I mean, independence of the Fed dates from different dates, depending on what subject we're talking about. But the Fed and the Treasury don't converse about this issue, right? Um, Treasury makes its own issuance decisions when the Fed purchases assets. So um, it always, by law, purchases outright purchases like the asset purchases in the secondary market. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not it's purchasing securities already issued, and in the secondary market, it's purchasing from primary dealers. When the assets are already on the balance sheet and they mature, and the Fed reinvests them, right. which is a current hot topic of discussion, right? When will the Fed start to scale back those reinvestments? It reinvests simply by adding on. Mm-hmm. to the Treasury's auction, and it buys completely across the issues in proportion to what's being issued. So oh, it's, it does? Yes, okay. it does. Completely well, proportionate that. to issuance. And Is that by just by, is that an, a policy requirement or is that just an internal defense? That is an FOMC decision. Um, it was done post-GFC for reinvestments. Okay. It was carried forward in this. Uh, usually... Um, you know, I, I don't know how much prior to the GFC it goes back. I mean, before the GFC, the Fed's portfolio was largely uh, treasuries, almost exclusively treasury securities maturing three months, uh, three years or less, okay. right? So That's, very short I, end. I got the impression it was more shorter term notes, but reading the statement today, it was, looked like it was across the board. So and you're verifying that. Yeah, it is, it is very across the board. Now, when they do the reinvestments, um, I'm just trying to pull up the... The data as we talk. So no, no, not at all. And, and you mentioned, and, I'm, and um, you, you mentioned this word stabilization. Um, the last time that the Fed decreased the balance sheet, I believe, was in late 2018, or maybe the second half of 2018. Um, August is what my... It, 2019, August. 2019. Yep. August, September was the big blow-up month. Yeah, and that, yeah, it's 2019, excuse me. Um, and that was a that wasn't a good run for the markets at that time, right? And so exactly. my question regarding stabilization, because you mentioned that the Fed jump needs does come in when there's markets are volatile, that makes sense. How you know the Dow goes down twenty five percent this month because or next month or nine and a half, whatever the Nasdaq was down in January, just on the jawboning that we may change our you know we're going to change policy. The relationship between markets and all of them and the Fed policy. I mean, it, I think there's people out there, if the market was down 25 or 30% right now, that's not our problem. we got inflation to fight with. But I just don't know if that's reality. I don't feel like that is, I so, don't know if I'd so be able to right put up with now, that. So right you now, the Fed is behind the curve. Um, they have a procedure that they instituted back in the 
2014 timeframe of tapering asset purchases, which they are doing now, meaning they're still buying, but they're buying less yeah. each month. And they're doing it faster than they did back in 2014. It didn't prove to be fast enough to get them to zero so that they could then lift off the funds rate. Because the logic of that is you don't want to be, you lift off the funds rate, you're removing accommodation, then why are you still buying, right? right. Why are you adding? So they should have stopped those sooner, but even, even though they haven't, they're still following that playbook, right? And meanwhile, they're telling you, they started telling you in December about their plans to raise interest rates this year. And now we know, and Pal said last week, March, why did he pinpoint March? He pinpointed March because he knows the labor market data on Friday are going to be very weak. Mm. And so if he hadn't told you they were at maximum employment and they're lifting off in March, then on Friday when you get that bad labor market report, you would have said maybe they're not going to lift off in March, but they are going to lift okay. off in March. Gotcha. Um, and meanwhile, they're talking tough, hoping that you know the stock market will fall and yeah. bond yields will rise, and they're totally content with what's going on in financial condition. That, that's what my point is: is the tools yeah. of the Fed are much beyond just policy changes. It's it's the language is already yeah. having the, the language effect. is very uh, yes, but they do need to follow up, right? I mean, if if they didn't, after all they've said, if they didn't actually end up raising right. the funds rate in March. Credibility would be an yes. Issue. Credibility would be an now. Issue. You state this so strongly, and I like to hear it. Um, that they should have, they should have done this. It sounds like you might have a difference of opinion with what actually went on at the Fed, and you were, you know, recently there. So, what is the? I always feel like there's a consensus that comes out of the Fed, just kind of by, you know, it needs to happen that way. But is there a, this much debate internally at, at times, or? There is debate internally for sure. Yeah. And there's debate amongst the staff groups. There's debate the staff, senior staff and policymakers, the the chairs bubble. Yes. Okay. Which is not all board members, but it's some board members. And then there's obviously debate within the FOMC. Sure. So there's different levels of debate. But by, by the time you get to the FOMC, uh, the the statement they're gonna sign that day, they've already seen you know, that, that's gone, right? They're not going to amend that statement in real time. But what they're really debating is where do they go next meeting and then meeting after that. So that's how those, F the FOMC is like paid in place. So if you only go to, you go to your first meeting. I remember my first meeting, which was November 2011. And I thought, wow, I mean, this is just crazy. <laughs> and then what I remember after that is you have to learn, you know, how, how they have a conversation, yeah. which is over time, right? Um, so here's one uh, thing. I don't know if my colleagues are debating it this way because one of the sad things about leaving is I can't really talk to them. Right. right? <laughs> and, and inflation took a turn after I left the building. And I was still confident over the course of maybe September, October, that things weren't going to get really bad right. in, on the inflation prints. The other thing I think you see from the outside is that the CPI, which is, as I said before, is running about a percentage point higher. So the CPI printed at seven right. in December, will probably print 7.1 in January, okay. something, and, and could even in February. So here we are, they're not gonna raise rates till March and they're gonna sit there while you get three months of inflation printing at seven or above, 
But seven isn't their measure. That's not the measure they use. The measure they use is running in the low sixes. And I think they're not doing enough to engage with the public on the measure that the public is hearing every day that the public's wages and social security payments are indexed to. And I think you really start to see that disconnect when you're outside, okay? I think that's interesting that you say that now. Was your I don't want to say you're an outsider, but you're part of us general public now. Yeah, absolutely. And there was that's my point is there's this division of extremely intelligent, well-intentioned people that I don't know if there's that direct relationship to you know John Q. Public out there. And I'm not saying there isn't, but it's just it would be hard to just given your position, you're not really even allowed to speak to the public about these things. Right. So, so keep in mind though that the Fed adopted a new framework in August 2020, right? And that framework was adopted because, and we can get into these issues if you want, there, uh, there's evidence that the what they call the equilibrium, the neutral rate of interest, is now lower, has come down, okay, over the last 20 years or so. And that the idea of going down to zero with the funds rate, the effective lower bound, is going to become an increasing problem, okay? Mm. So the more that becomes a problem, and then the people who've written the research papers on this say that that imparts a bias to inflation being low, okay, below the 2% goal, which, right. you know, Powell was always fond of saying, he came onto the committee in um, June of 2012. And from May 2012, uh, all the way through to recently, this PCE inflation that they target at 2% was running below 2, like 1718. They couldn't get it up to 2. Well, if there's a downward bias to inflation from hitting to the ELB, then what that means is the, the nominal interest rate that the Fed targets, if inflation keeps coming down, that's going to be lower and lower right. over time. So the more you hit the ELB, and then the more downward bias there is, the lower the nominal rate is, the more you hit the ELB. Right. So it's a unending cycle. And part of the reason of this framework, which has been called a flexible average inflation targeting framework, was to get inflation to run above 2% for a while. Mm. Okay? It worked. So it did work. <laughs> so the thing is, I think they're also running a little slow because they want to make sure, or at least there were some of them, who were perfectly happy to see inflation blow through, maybe not quite as high as it is, right. but but during last summer and into the fall, gee, that's good because we get inflation up and then they can bring it back down. But maybe my view is they don't really want to bring it back down to two. They want to bring it down to something between two and two and a half. And you said CPI. What is the primary measure? They don't use CPI as the primary They measure? use the PCE, the Personal Consumption Expenditures okay. uh, Price Index. So in their statement on longer run goals, which I have right here in front of me. <laughs> Great. They say um, the committee you know, affirms its judgment that inflation at the rate of 2% as measured by the annual change in the price index for personal consumption expenditures. Huh. Wow, okay. Is most consistent over the longer run with the statutory measure. And that is that measure, I know the CPI has a lot of weighting on commodities, particularly gold, I mean, excuse me, oil. So. I don't know the end. I'll have to look up the, the components of the PCE. So PCE has a lot of the same stuff. The difference is that, you know, the CPI weights are like invariant. Yeah. And the PCE weights 
uh, move over time with the consumption basket. It's, so it's more representative. Of the current state. Yeah. yeah. What about, so in all of those comments and all that input, I mean, if you were making decisions right now, I mean, would you be moving, would you be reducing the sheet and moving at 50 beeps? Every, every? Not 50. Um, I would have ended asset, so they got themselves into this bind in the sense that even if they ended asset purchases in January, uh, if they wanted to get interest rates up, they had to end in January and lift interest rates at the same time because they don't have another meeting till March, right. right? What they really should have done, if you go back to the minutes of the September meeting, Powell only let them look at one, what the minutes called an illustrative scenario for the taper. Okay, that's unusual. Usually, the committee's presented with two or more options, and then the minutes communicate around those options. Mm. You might have a slower option, a faster option, one in the middle, okay? The minutes in September nailed them to the cross of the original taper amounts, which they then validated at the November meeting. But by November, they were already behind. They should have had a couple of options in September and gone with the faster one in November. Okay. Was that the and time then, the and then when they doubled down in December, they could have just, you know, said we're ending in January and started talking about the hike and and ended in January and hiked or ended in December and hiked last week. They should not be adding a comment. They are running. Inflation is running at seven on the CPI. We'll run two more months yeah. around seven. Right. I think we're, yeah. Okay. They're they're. Uh, adding more in the sense that they're still buying assets every month, they're telling you they're going to hike, but the reality is they're no. still adding accommodation to the economy. It's the wrong thing to do. Well, you say September, and I find that so interesting because I believe the nomination reappointment was around that time, so I'm not It was later. Make... It was after. But I mean, it was, it was yeah. it, that, when you say that Powell mandated they had to go with this one option, Yeah. that was not far away from reappointment time and I just that had to I just to me it plays a role so but you also you also suggest the inflation data wasn't there in September too so maybe it was the comment. Yeah he claims he claimed in the December press conference and I believe this is true that he the thing that really got his attention was Q3's ECI data the employment compensation index data that came out right before I think it was at the very end of October it came out right before their November FOMC meeting and he claimed in the December press conference that he had staff start to work on accelerated options right as those data were released. And of course, right after their meeting, they got the jobs numbers for October. And then the next week they got the CPI. And that was the really killer CPI yeah, data yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so for October. Yeah. Interesting timing yeah. is all I could say. So. But they certainly weren't out in front. You know, Greenspan always made you get out in front of things. Absolutely not out in front, not yeah. moving to get out in front, and not moving now to get out in front. I guess they're behind, but I, I just don't, I don't understand the logic at some. So, level. in your opinion, the risk is higher and longer inflation. Not, you know, I, I mean, so, I, I could see a theory where I could see this year working out where supply. Maybe the surprise is that inflation comes way down because the supply chain. I, really gets I think fixed. inflation will come down. Yeah. So I think this is what they're thinking, but the risk is obviously where you're putting it. I think they expect and have expected for a while that over the first half of this year, inflation is going to fall back. There were always some signs in the uh, December 
was it December inflation print or was it what we just saw in PCE for Q4? Um, there are already some signs that inflation is starting to fall back in some of the supply constrained industries. So I think they're expecting to be to start hiking in March and hike into weakening demand yeah. and slowing inflation. That's why they won't go 50 basis points. They do not want to throw the economy into recession. They would go, I could see them going 25, 25, 25, March, May, June, right. or 25 in March and May, taking a breather in June, depending on the data, or or maybe, and, and you gotta, the balance sheet plays into this too. When are they gonna announce the balance sheet runoff? Um, they have this uh, religion that the funds rate is the primary policy tool, which means that they wanna get the funds rate up enough that if another downturn should hit, they can lower it. And they wanna do that before they start pulling things out of the balance sheet. So, you know, I think you've got three increases of the funds rate before they start on the balance yeah. sheet. But I think they could well be hiking into a slowing economy, which means they could, you know, take a pause in the summer. And I don't know if they get to the forecast that they'd written down. They had written down on the PCE headline index in this summary of economic projection. They had written down 2.7 for Q4 over Q4 2022. Palinus press conference said, that he would, if he were writing it down in January, he'd be a few tenths higher, which I take That's to mean lot, he's yeah. signaling he could see a three number there. They're not going to like a three number. So, um, but I think they really think the economy is on the verge of slowing, both in inflation and output, and they do not want to hike into recession. I, I, I question this concept that Given what you told me about the reserve requirement and just general money printing and just the t total, I mean, the doubling of, we'll call it money supply, I know it's a different term in the Fed, but the 4.2 to 8, 9 trillion in two years, I, I don't see how the Fed funds is the primary instrument anymore. I just don't, I don't see that. It seems like balance sheet is as, as much of a primary instrument as Fed funds, in my opinion. And it certainly seems like that from the results of all the things you just said with the, so I, I just feel like that is a, um, I don't, I don't know how you make that argument. So. That's a really interesting point that you make because uh, running up to last week's meeting, I was having a little trouble with the primary policy instrument argument and the fact that they would move on the balance sheet. You know, there was all this discussion right. that they mo move right away. Well, how is it primary if you're going to start reducing the balance sheet right away? But yet the balance sheet's so big, you got to get going, right? Yeah. And I do think, so Powell, when he came in as chair in 2018, um, the stuff that we wrote, uh, at least for the board's website, and the reserve banks don't necessarily follow the convention on this, but at the board, you can imagine we, as you said, you know, the, the letter that you received, or, <laughs> right. you know, they go through umpteen million reviews by economists, by public affairs staff, by yeah. Hill staff, you know, all, uh, not staff on the Hill, but our internal congressional liaison people. Um, we always referred to asset purchases and forward guidance as unconventional policy tools. Well, one of the first things Chair Powell said was no more unconventional. These are part of the toolkit. <laughs> right. That's fair. <laughs> so, okay, so now we know they're part of the toolkit. They used them both heavily during the pandemic. 
they're here to stay. I think it really does bring up this question you ask is to what extent is the funds rate the primary policy tool? Yeah. I mean, and I think that is a messaging and communication issue or problem for them that they're going to be wrestling with as we move through this year and forward. I think that from the times I've seen, and it's not been very many, the Fed balance sheet shrink, markets don't like it. And I can understand, given what you said, that we're probably running into a stage where inflation is probably going to come back. I mean, just naturally, it's not going to run at seven. I mean, it would be hard. To well, unless that. it gets into wages and prices, right? Yeah. In, in a sort of ongoing it seems spiral. Like in the on the street, I can tell you, the people I do business with are raising prices just because they can. Hey, they're awesome. raising prices. You know, the guy down the street's raising. We're just going to raise them just because it's the time to do it. What else are we going to do? I sit on board calls where we have those conversations. The whole world's raising prices. Why don't we? So that's the difference, and and I think that that at some point that runs itself out. But but I don't see how you go from nine trillion to eight trillion and not have a very unstabilized market somewhere. And I, I would be concerned about that if I was in the Fed. So I don't know. That just seems like you're almost. It's almost like some of the. Government programs are getting enacted on an on an emergency basis that are here forever. Um, right, and, and but that's an argument for starting as soon as you can too. I agree. I just think if it's ten billion or twenty, or I guess we're in trillions. I don't even know what a real number is. A hundred billion a month that you reduce. It probably it could be as much as a hundred billion a month. Yeah. I think. Um, so I don't know. I would feel. I would feel. I could understand saying this is a this could present real problems, especially if we do believe. That inflation is going to be coming backwards, and we, then we're going to start taking the balance sheet down. So that could well, that's another reason to postpone the balance sheet. Put your plans out there for balance sheet. Socialize that so markets get used to it. But you don't pull the trigger on it until you're sure the economy is not slowing too quickly, yeah. right? So Pal used to say later this year or so, later in 2022, um, you know, the people who are talking soon are the Reserve Bank presidents who are hawks and and Governor Waller, yeah. who's not on the inside. He's not in Pell's inner circle. So it's Bullard. It's it's right. some of the hawks. Um, when Pell talks about it, he talks about the second half of the year, which could be July, right. right? But it also gives them a lot of optionality if the economy is slowing very quickly. They get their plans out there, but they wait to pull the trigger. What is the... Um, <clears throat> What you know? Obviously, we talk about Fed funds being primary in the balance sheet, but there's a good argument that the longer end of the curve may not move at all. Given the there's, I think still most. Of the, I mean, we're starting to see other economies starting to tighten, but it's not universal. There's certainly right. some that are loose still. And right, so that, like that the money ECL, like Europe. Yeah, that money transfers. To, I think it, and I haven't looked at the. I gotta look at the Treasury's holdings, but I believe the foreign purchases of Treasuries are going up, not down, because there's zero rates or mm -hmm. low zero in many mm -hmm. economies. So. How does the Fed think about that? Hey, we, ten year may stay at one eight, even though Fed funds goes to one twenty five. Right. So there's a ton of worry about this in the markets. It, it, you turn on Bloomberg yeah. every morning, and that's all they talk about is this low terminal rate. But the argument that you're making, which I think is a really good one, um, Pal made in the December press conference. I think uh, Rich Clarida made in the remarks he gave at San Francisco back in November, this idea that there's a global, what economists sometimes talk about as a global common factor. Yeah. That, that a longer term yields are really driven as much by the uh, investors who are seeking international return and playing carry trade type things 
Um, and you have to look at the U.S. as a safe haven in that context. And it may almost delink that 10-year rate from right. what's going on at the front end of the yield curve, right? And yet, a lot of the discussion on Bloomberg, it seems to me, and, and I'm blaming Bloomberg, but it's out there in the you know, in Wall the Street Journal. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's kind of misplaced, I think, this focus on yield curve inversion um, as if... Um, you know, yes, it has been true in in previous cycles, this correlation, but it's only a correlation. It's not causal, right? And and so I think there's, I think you could be right. I mean, I mean, that's the um, way I've seen it is that even with it is, we've already seen it so far as the yield curves flatten to some degree, if you will. Right, so, right. Um, but I do see. And the Fed would hike into inversion kind of. And idea. that doesn't mean a recession though, in my right. mind as a money manager. So I, yeah. I, I just, uh, I do think there's a, and maybe it's just, frankly, just, Maybe isn't a big concern. The ten years is going to be where it is. You buy it if you want, but I can. I, that's not something they're going to control directly. So right. Uh, but but I, you're making the delinking argument, right? I that the ten years kind of out there in its own universe, operating yeah. on the, you know, with the pressures that apply to it, and then there's the short end of the shorter end of the market. Well, this is the reason why I bring it up is because this is the first time I can remember where I've seen central banks in different policy stances. At least the major, like BOA's already yeah, piped true. once or twice, mm -hmm. maybe I believe. Mm -hmm. um, once I think in their is in their policy meeting like tomorrow and there are so. yeah, like Thursday and they're expected uh, to hike again. You got Bank of Canada essentially waiting for the Fed to go right because they don't want to uh, induce uh, an exchange rate change. I think, but you have you know, Australia. Printing. Yes, right. I mean, who else is printing? Is, is India? No, India's tightening. Uh, anyways, I've seen a few economies that are definitely loosening policy. Right. So <clears throat> it, I felt like in two thousand eight. And maybe in 2000, uh, during the pandemic, 2020. It was I more just, synchronous. I felt like there was there were backdoor calls going on, and rightfully so, between all central major central banks saying, we've got to do all this and let's work together, and that would make sense to stabilize markets. But now I feel like we're in a new paradigm where everybody's got to act independently, and their big problem is the inflation prints and, the, and their yep. status in the public eye. Right? Yeah, and yeah. COVID, yeah. right? Where, where is COVID in their economies, and how much is it holding back? It's so funny Activity. to think of COVID and how much it, I guess you could see a comeback, but like you would think at that time prices would be falling because demand was so low given the, and it's just, it was the opposite. I think it's just a complicated world that that lives in. It, it <laughs> so, well, listen, um, this is great stuff. I've learned a lot today and uh, I, this is, these are, these are things I'm going to have a lot more questions for round two whenever we do this again. But uh, I want to thank you for coming and sharing that some of my readers are, you know, they follow this policy so closely and you've articulated so well for folks that just maybe aren't on the same history and knowledge level. But uh, I also want to congratulate you on your appointment to a new position at Duke, which thank is you. exciting. Thank you. I'm very excited. And, uh, you know, if you have any more great policy ideas or changes that you can think of, call us. We're available for <laughs> we're available for any information that you have. But you've done it. Thank you for your service to the Fed and the community, and you know, spending time with us and our listeners. They, they were really going to enjoy this one. Well, thanks, Joe. I was happy to do it. Thanks.